This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Jillian Berman, MarketWatch's Deputy Enterprise Editor, and today we're talking about financial aid. Uh, joining us in this conversation, we have Rachel Fishman, uh, the Acting Director of Higher Education at New America. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. This is a topic I know you know a lot about. Um, we've talked about it a lot, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Um, so the the topic of this uh, session is decoding financial aid offers. Um, but before we get to that, can we just talk a little bit about how students actually end up with these offers? Like, what are these? What is the process um, by which students end up seeing these? Yeah, absolutely. So financial aid offers are really those personalized information that you receive directly from colleges and universities once you've been accepted and once you've also applied for financial aid. So in other words, first you apply to college, then you submit your financial aid application. Um, this is often the federal application for student aid. Um, it, you might know it as the FAFSA. Um, sometimes schools require another application like College Board's uh, CSS profile. So people might be familiar with that one as well. And then once you're accepted, the financial aid office is going to put a financial aid package together for you. And so this is what we think about um, and refer to as financial aid offers. Uh, and, and you really need to receive this uh, before you make that final uh, final decision of where to attend. And I know that's looming for, our, for a lot of uh, first-time students because that date is usually May 1st. Um, so, you know, you might also know it as a financial aid award letter or the financial aid package or the financial aid portal that an institution sends. Um, but this is really finally where you learn how much is college going to cost for me personally and what exactly does my aid look like specifically. Uh, this is this is really, you know, if you've used a net price calculator, it was all an estimation to this point, and now finally you have the data at your hands. Got it. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kinds of aid a college might be talking about in this letter? You know, what kind of resources are they going to be referring to? Yeah, so there's lots of, there should be lots of content, and so we're going to get into, into the discussion uh, about whether some of these communications have all the things that they should have. But I mean, they should include things like the overall cost to attend, um, the different types of aid, as you mentioned, like what types of aid are on there. Um, there should be, you know, your federal grants and um, any eligibility for federal loans, any eligibility for state grants or scholarship and state loans, um, your institutional scholarship. Uh, and maybe, you know, you might have something like a federal work study on there. Um, there might be even other information about alternative financing options, like something like the Federal Parent Plus Loan, which is a loan borrowed by parents. There might be information about uh, private loans. Um, there might even be something like, oh, like, do you need a tuition payment plan? So there's lots of different pieces of information that, that go into a financial aid offer. Got it. And, and when you talk about institutional aid, right, that's any money that is coming from 
your school, right? And so in that, that could be based solely on need, could be based on merit, could be based on a combination, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so it's usually mostly scholarships and grants all with different terms and conditions depending on the institution. Got it. Okay. Um, great. And so, you know, you've been looking into these, these offers for a while. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what uh, sort of motivated you to, to, to research this topic? Yeah, so I became really interested in this uh, topic when I worked as an education advisor in Boston's public library. I, I worked in this free resource center that was in the basement of, of the library that really helped students navigate applying for federal financial aid using the FAFSA. And if you can believe it, this was so long ago that the FAFSA was even more complicated than it is now. So we would get lots of people coming in asking for help navigating the FAFSA and inevitably what would happen um, was that they would come back once they got their financial aid offers and they would help need help navigating that process. And so, you know, I really had filling out the FAFSA down pat. Um, but when it came to navigating financial aid offers, they all look different. Like every single college had a different financial aid offer. Um, some of them were super confusing and very opaque. Um, the better ones were less confusing, but still really confusing. And I think importantly, it was almost impossible for students to really make side-by-side -side comparisons and figure out, you know, is college A does that make more financial sense for me and my family compared to college B or college C? And so often what I do is I'd set up an Excel spreadsheet and I'd be like, let's start pulling apart these financial aid offers so you can make this side to side comparison and make the decision that's going to best work with you. Um, working with students has been instrumental in helping me figure out where things are really broken for students and families and and what needs fixing. And it really pushed me to go into the role I'm in today where I'm trying to help change policy at a federal level. And the back of my mind was always this idea of financial aid offers or just extremely poorly communicated. Um, and so I was always trying to think about how could they be improved and luckily, um, you know, it's really hard to get the data from these offers uh, because they are um, they are sent directly to students. So, you know, as a researcher, there was no database for me to access that was like, oh, you know, here's thousands and thousands of what these communications look like. No, instead, they are at the student level. But where the luckily comes in is that you aspire, um, which is a, a nonprofit that that counsels students about financial aid um, and, and college choice. Um, they actually had collected a lot of these uh, financial aid offers in one place, and we were able to partner with them and finally write a report that shed light on, you know, exactly what the issues were with these with these offers. Yeah, and so let's dig in a little bit to, you know, I, I'm, as families are kind of like receiving this and, and trying to um, parse through these letters, like what were some of, or I guess actually they're not just letters, they're like, you know, it's 2023, they're web portals so, or, or things like that. Um, what are some of the most confusing terms that, you know, that came up for, for you guys? Um, you know, and maybe just give a couple and, and kind of and what they actually mean. Yeah, so there were a like a few astonishing findings. Like I knew it was bad, but seeing it at like a like like hundreds of colleges, like we looked at over 500 unique colleges and universities. And I think 
one of our best findings in our report and one of our most damning findings is that everybody who fills out a FAFSA is eligible for something called um, the federal direct unsubsidized loans. This is this is a, a component of aid that everyone's pretty much going to be eligible for. Um, but we found that across those 500 colleges and universities, there were um, institutions 130 different ways that they were calling this one type of loan, and 20 institutions didn't even call it a loan at all. And so, like when you think about comparing financial aid offers. Uh, among different institutions and different colleges and universities, it's going to be really hard to do if they can't even get on the same page with one loan that everybody is eligible for. Um, another finding that I found really astonishing was that, uh, you know, over a third of the colleges we looked at included no information on the price of college. So imagine getting a $20,000 scholarship and really celebrating how amazing it is that you just got this $20,000 scholarship, but there's no number to subtract it from, right? So you have to go looking and then maybe you find out that the cost of attending that college is $60,000. So even though you got a really amazing scholarship, that still leaves that $40,000 gap that you need to fill in other ways. So maybe that scholarship was not as great as you initially thought it to be. And you might be left wondering why on earth did this institution not just put this information right there on the financial aid offer so I didn't have to have my heart broken and had to go searching for all of this information myself. Um, and I think one of the worst practices we saw is that uh, just under one in five institutions would take the federal parent plus loan, which I've mentioned before. But I think the thing that's really important to remember about this loan is this is not a student loan. This is a federal loan that is borrowed uh, by the parent and is only in the parent's name. It's the parent's duty to pay it back. Um, and the parent has to pass a credit check, unlike with federal student loans. So, you know, your parent might not actually pass this credit check. You might not actually get access to this loan. But at the end of the day, what happens with this loan is that um, some of the institutions were just putting it into a financial aid package, weren't being very clear what it is, and then just telling the student they get a full ride. Like, you owe zero dollars, just sign on the line. Um, and so I found that to be very misleading. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and I think to also to lay out for people sort of, you know, the, um, and, and Rachel, you can jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the the sort of like best practices, right, of, of what, um, both uh, a government watchdog and and you all have said, um, you know, should be appearing on these letters is the total cost of attendance. So that's tuition, fees, housing, books, things like that. Um, so things the school charges directly and things that you have to pay for, but you may not pay the school directly for, minus any grants or scholarships. And then this number that you've referred to already, which we call the net price, which is what students and families will be responsible paying for out of their own pocket. And they could use loans, they could use work study, they could use any money they've saved or, you know, other income or whatever to put towards that. And so when you're talking about, right, including, um, you know, subtracting a loan amount from that total cost of attendance and then saying your net price is, you know, is, is lower because of those loans, you're, it's, it's understating, right, the amount that a student and family will have to come up with. Is that? Yeah, exactly. And I think what what's really challenging is remember, there's a lot of students who are the first in their families to go to college. And if you've never navigated this, per, this, 
this process before and you're not familiar with the terminology and lingo, especially if an institution just calls it a federal direct plus and they don't say this is a parent loan. Like, how are you supposed to know that $40,000 in federal direct plus isn't a grant if you're just not familiar with any of this? Um, you know, when I talked to the GAO about the report that they wrote that you mentioned that you know, is very similar to what our report was from a few years ago. Really nothing has changed with financial aid offers in intervening years, despite despite all this reporting on it. Um, is is that uh, is that, um, you know, they said that they were trained in order to do the the report on how to evaluate these offers. And even they walked away like the calculations that some of the institutions were engaging in did not make any sense. So even they were very frustrated by the process. And remember, they had to be trained to evaluate these. So they had all the perfect information to understand how to do these calculations. And even the people from the GAO were left wondering, what what is going on here? How did they arrive at these numbers? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, right. The, these are professional, <laughs> you know, professional government watchdogs trying to um, figure this out and it's still complicated for them. Um, okay, I wanna remind everyone to submit any questions. We will be taking questions. We already have some in the queue, but um, if you if you have questions, please uh, send those through. Um, okay, so I, another, you know, another thing that I think we're all wondering about is why um, are these offers so difficult for families to, and as we discussed, government watchdogs even <laughs> to navigate. You know what what is going on at colleges that you know makes it so that these they might send out a sort of confusing communication. Yeah. So you know, I know this is like part of Financial Fitness Week, right? So you, you know, we're trying to talk about things like financial literacy and stuff like this. But I know that if you are left scratching your head and the GAO is left scratching your head, this isn't just like you need to be better at navigating this. This is an indication that really what's going on is that there is no minimum standard that governs these communications that come from the school and go directly to you. So it's become this really confusing mess to navigate. Um, and it's hard to get really that straightforward answer of how much is this going to cost me? Um, and really, higher education is an outlier in this case. You know, there are so many things that govern um, car, uh, purchasing a car, purchasing a home uh, with a mortgage, credit card statements, health insurance, all of those come with minimum standards of how you have to communicate different aspects of that transaction. And higher education has none of that in place. Um, you know, part of it is a resource issue. So part of it is that with with nothing really in place, like no standard that, that there is to follow, um, many colleges are just kind of doing their own thing and they don't really have the, the resources to dedicate to really make these communications clearer. Many of them are using software vendors that, they, you know, they just type in the information and it packages the students and they're not really thinking about what it spits out on the student end. So there's a lot of that going on. But I think another really big part to remember is that at the end of the day, most institutions want you to come and they want your money and they want you to enroll. Um, so they're going to try to make themselves look as affordable as possible to make that happen. So really, you know, the 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 incentives are misaligned at the end of the day. Um, the best interests of the institution in this scenario where they're handing you this communication is not necessarily the, aligned with the best interest of you as a student financially. And I think one of the important things to remember is that 
loans at the end of the day are really like grants to the institution. There is, you know, it's the student that takes them out and the institution gets the money, right? So, I mean, these are all things to keep in mind as you get the these communications and why they might look this way. The institution really wants you to come and they want to make it seem like you can and that it's really affordable. And so they're trying to, to, to make that work. Yeah. Okay. And so now let's get into um, some tips. Let, let's get into some tips for how to, you know, how to navigate these. So let's say so you've received a few of them, and this may be a, a real life scenario for for some listeners because Mon or yeah, Monday is May first, which is usually the date that most colleges require um, students to you know kind of make their final decision by. So let's say you've received a number of these communications, you want to figure out what your best option is, at least financially. You know, of course, there's other things that go into picking a college. Um, how do you you know what are some tips for for decoding these letters? Yeah, if you'd like to do a side-by-side -side comparison, you can still do something like a spreadsheet, which makes me really sad because it's what I did in high school 20 years ago. It's what I did as an advisor 10 years ago, and it's what I still recommend. I do think there are some apps out there. I haven't actually used any because um, I'm not in college advising work anymore. Um, so you could check out some apps, but I haven't vetted any, so there's not any necessarily that I would, I, I would recommend, but there are some things like that out there at this point. Um, but I think the first thing to really remember is that uh, you should have all the price information. Jillian, you mentioned cost of attendance, which is not just tuition and fees. It's also you know, living in your dorm, getting a meal plan. Um, if you live off campus, what would it be like to have an apartment? How much would you have to pay on groceries and going out to eat? Um, how much would your books and supplies be? You know, you might not think that you need that information. Those are known as like indirect expenses, but you do need to be aware of them and you do, and, and institutions are required to formulate budgets for them um, so that you make sure that you really do have enough money to be successful. You know, if you can't buy your textbook or your portal access code from that textbook and that you need to hand your homework into, like if you haven't considered that as part of like the calculus of being a college student, then you are not going to be able to submit your homework and you're going to fall short. And this stuff can get expensive. Books can be expensive. Um, so they're required to give you that information. So make sure you have all of it. Make sure you know which ones um, go to the school, which which of the expenses go direct to the school that you need to set foot on campus so that you have those covered first and make sure you've budgeted and you know how to cover the budget for those other indirect expenses like the books and supplies, like maybe monthly housing if you live off campus. Um, an important thing to do is separate um, all the different types of aid. So uh, oftentimes we saw in financial aid offers that uh, institutions would list aid, like there would be a grant then there'd be a loan, then there'd be a scholarship, then there'd be work study, then there'd be another grant, then there'd be another loan. And so it was very confusing as to, you know, what are all these different types of aid? What's a loan? What's a grant? So make sure you you extract the grants and scholarships first. That's going to be the most important thing. People like the free money first, of course. Um, make sure you know what the terms and conditions of those, those grants are, particularly the ones that come from institutions, uh, because it might just be like the grant, one grant that you get your first year, right? Um, and you want to make sure you can renew that grant year after year if it's 
large enough that it's making you make that decision. Um, make sure you keep the loans separate, um, you know, and that you can apply those and that you're aware of them and you can apply those loans. Um, make sure you keep anything that's labeled work study separate and know that you have to find a work study job. You have to work those hours in order to get that money. You can't apply it up front to your bill. Um, anything that says parent plus, any alternative financing option that should just kind of like really be downplayed at the very end and in and, and should only come after consideration after all the other things I, I've mentioned. Um, private loans, be very careful. They don't come with a lot of protections. Parent plus, again, while federal are less flexible than federal student loans in terms of repayment, have higher interest rates. And again, paid back by your parent. You can't transfer them to your to your student. Um, and then make sure you know the next steps for accepting, declining, or reducing aid so that you don't miss any deadlines. You don't leave any aid on the table. And, and yes, you heard me right. You can reduce and decline aid just because you have, for example, loans or parent plus loans in your package. If for whatever reason you don't want to take those loans, you don't need to. Great. Yeah. And then um, what what situations, um, you know, in, in what situations might it make sense to to try to negotiate these or to come back to the to the college or universities? Like around this time of year, we always hear and read a lot about, you know, maybe you can negotiate these offers. So when does it make sense to do that? I think it absolutely makes the most sense. If you've had anything change with your financial circumstances, the FAFSA operates off of uh prior prior year taxes, which is a really complicated way of saying that the tax returns a student or parent used to fill out that application might be really out of date with a family's um, current financial status. Research has shown it's usually not that far out of date, but for example, if in the last year your parent lost a job or there's something that um, makes it so that your income looks uh, more generous than it, it actually is because you have a special circumstance that the financial aid office doesn't know about. Um, gather your evidence, go to the financial aid office. Um, they are there to help. Uh, they might be able uh, to um, to change some of your status um, and and get you more eligibility, but they, they need to know about that soon and they need to know um, exactly what your situation is that that perhaps changed what we saw on, um, on the application. Yeah, and I'll add that a lot of times colleges will list somewhere kind of their preferred route for you making these communications. So maybe it's in an email, maybe it's a web form, something like that. Um, they'll they, a lot of times they will on their website, on their financial aid website, will tell you like this is how we prefer to receive these communications. Um, and I will also add to what Rachel said that sometimes um, you know for for merit aid, um, if you've if you've had a you know sort of a big change in school performance, you know during since you submitted your application, say you won an award or you know things like that, sometimes you can you know you can send it in and, and see what they say. Obviously, you know, schools uh, are not obligated <laughs> to to revise these, but, you know, if you think it's appropriate, um, that's something you can do. Uh, okay, now let's get to some questions. Um, so here's a question from John. Uh, can you help explain how college looks at income and financial assets when determining how much aid a student is eligible for? 
Yeah, so it's really complicated, and that is a great question for, for like, you could probably do an entire seminar on this. Um, but there's something known, so once you put all your information into the aid application, um, it, it gives, and I don't know exactly, like, again, it's a very complicated, like, financial um, calculation. It spits out something known as the expected family contribution. Um, and so you should get this after, as soon as you fill out the FAFSA. And what it will say is like, you know, it ranges zero all the way up to a very large number. Um, and zero, the closer it is to zero, the indication um, that you are considered um, financially needy, the higher it is, the more uh, likely you're not going to get need-based aid. Um, so it, it's the behind-the-scenes calculation that goes on. There are some things um, that result in what is known as like an automatic zero expected family contribution. It's usually if you've had access to things like um, um, the SNAP program, um, TANF, something like that. Like that would get you to like an auto zero EFC. Yeah. And right. And, you know, there's, there's this, the whole calculation in the background, but you know, they're, they're looking at things like your income, um, assets, certain assets are, are excluded. If I'm, you know, That's for right. example, right. Retirement yeah. accounts are not, um, are not part of the calculation. Um, you know, so there's, they're sort of, they're looking at the whole family's financial picture and they're, you know, they're saying, okay, this is, um, you know, what, what we think they're eligible for kind of based on that. Oh, uh, you know, obviously there's a difference, um, in terms of if you're a dependent student, which is, you know, sort of, you know, you, you, you just graduated from high school and you're 18 years old and you live with your parents and now you're going to go to college versus an independent student, you know, you've, you've lived on your own for a little bit, you've been working and now you're going to college. Um, that obviously will make a difference too. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, here's a, a question from Steve. Um, when do financial aid decisions usually get delivered? Will parents and students have enough time to make the decision on which school to attend based on financial aid offers? So I think I think this is like a little bit mixed and it depends on the institution. So a few years ago, the timelines were very misaligned. Um, the You couldn't fill out the federal aid application until January 1st, and you'd have to use prior year taxes, which no, nobody has their taxes done like on January 1st. Um, so it meant that there was a very quick time crunch to turn around your aid application, to get your acceptance letter, and then to make your decision May 1st. Like oftentimes, um, maybe you would only get your financial aid offer maybe a couple weeks before you had to make a decision. So this is very stressful. I think in certain situations that still happens, but the the good news is, is that um, next year's FAFSA is a little bit delayed. So next year is going to be a little bit of like an aberration, but um, moving forward and, and for the past few years, the aid application opens in October, which is around the time people apply to college. So you can simultaneously apply for college and apply for financial aid. If an institution has all of its ducks in a row, that means that when you get accepted, you get your financial aid offer simultaneously. So you have that longer time to make that decision instead of that like two week crunch a lot of students were experiencing. Um, but it, it doesn't always a lot sometimes you know you might get accepted first and then get your financial aid offer offer later but i do think overall the crunch is not as severe as it used to be but it still can be a time crunch yeah and i'll say you know 
get, I'll add getting in the the aid, aid application as early as possible um, can be helpful for other reasons besides decision making, which is that a lot of um, state aid programs use that information to make their decisions. And in a lot of cases, those can be, um, you know, unfortunately, like kind of first come first serve. So the, the money can run out. Um, so it's good if you can to get that information in as soon as possible. Um, okay, this is one from Mike. Um, how has the recent SCOTUS ruling, so it's not no ruling yet, but <laughs> impacted Biden's student debt relief plan? If the plan moves forward, how will it impact future borrowers? Will that relief be proactive or only retroactive? Um, so let's, I, you know, maybe we can think a little bit about, you know, sort of there's, there's kind of a lot of questions looming about this Biden administration debt forgiveness plan, um, the payment pause as well. Um, and so how should people who are getting ready to go to college now um, think about those, you know, sort of those news events <laughs> um, as they, you know, make their plans? Yeah, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with um, the ruling. It would be like a moment in time, you know, debt cancellation. So it doesn't mean it would have to happen again uh, if future borrowers wanted access to it. So it wouldn't be anything that applies to future borrowers. So this is a great question as to like, well, what does this mean in the future for people who are thinking about borrowing money and uh, borrowing for college and borrowing federal student loans? Um, I think something that many people might be unaware of is that um, there are these repayment plans called income-driven repayment. Um, and you know, they've been around for a while, but over time, the plans have gotten more and more generous, which means that um, you only pay a small amount of your discretionary income. Um, and then after a certain amount of years, the your loans would be forgiven. So maybe you never make that much money for whatever reason. Um, and it's kind of like an insurance plan on your loans where you could literally have what is called a $0 payment. And it would count as a payment and you would continue to be um, uh, repaying your loans and then you could get forgiveness at the end. So the Biden administration, while they've been battling in the courts um, for, for, for debt forgiveness, they've also simultaneously been putting plans into place to make a income-driven repayment plan um, the most generous one to date, where really you wouldn't um, start repaying your loans until you were like moderate to middle income. And then that's when you'd start, start uh, with payments. You need to be aware of this plan because you need to be able to to say you want to be in this plan. So that's why that's why I, I mention it here. Um, so just be on the lookout for know what income driven repayment is, know what your repayment options are, because that's going to be a great, great option for navigating loans in the future. Um, there's also, also something called public uh, sector or public service loan forgiveness. Um, many people refer to it as PSLF. And that's another thing that the Biden administration has been trying to improve. You might um, have 
have seen in the news like something like, oh, 99% of people who apply to this program get rejected. Um, but they've really been putting into place uh, ways to alleviate the bottleneck for PSLF. Um, I know exactly how PSLF borrowers feel. I was I was one of those PSLF borrowers. I work for a, a nonprofit, so I have access to PSLF. And I will say, like over the last year, I finally got forgiveness for all my loans. So it does work. Um, and uh, the Biden administration is, is, is trying to simplify it. And I didn't mention what exactly it is, but basically if you work for a government or a nonprofit and you make 120 payments under one of those income-driven repayment plans, your loans will be, the balance of your loans will be forgiven at that point. Um, so it's a great benefit people should be aware of, particularly people who want to go into um, service professions like 501c3s and government. Great. Okay. And we have, if it's okay, can you stick around for a few more minutes? Cause we have some, some more questions that I'd love to get to. Sure. Um, okay. So here is a question from someone named Elizabeth. Um, she asks, how can I advocate for a college to give me my financial aid award letter? There's a school that said it won't be available until July. Is that typical or? I mean, I don't know if that's typical because I haven't been like, I, yeah. I haven't interacted with every, you know, every situation. What I would say is that if you need to make a May 1st decision with that school in particular, I would be very wary of any school that won't give you your financial aid information before you need to make a decision. Now, if it's a situation that I mean, maybe it's an, a cycle, a school that's off cycle or, or, or something like that. And it's just that they don't give financial aid packages before that moment in time, but that you don't actually need to make a decision by May 1st, then maybe it's it's less of a big deal. But I, I'd continue to call them if that is the school that you are interested in going to and that you are uh, need to make a decision by May 1st because you absolutely should never make any sort of big financial decision like this without all the information. In fact, like that sort of behavior from a college, I would be concerned that it's actually uh, predatory behavior. Yeah. Um, okay. This is, um, this should be a quick one. <laughs> if you have a um, a direct subsidized loan, you're required to start making monthly payments six months after graduation. What happens if you go directly to graduate school as the grace period extended? Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, maybe um, we can we can get at it a bit more. What resources, tools, reports, um, et cetera, do you recommend for comparing the cost of college? Where can we get new? Where can we get good advice? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, every institution is required to have something called a net price calculator. Um, again, this is another this is another thing from institutions that like a lot of institutions kind of do their own thing. But this is really supposed to you're supposed to put in some inputs about yourself and it's supposed to be more personalized than you just going off and, and researching um you know, what's my federal aid eligibility? What's this? What's that? Um, but I think the important thing to remember about net price calculators is that you need to find them on these websites, right? So like you have to turn to Google and maybe put in the name of, of the institution and the words net price calculator and it should come to the top. But a lot of people don't even know that there are these things called net price calculators. So they don't know that they could get some personalized information of what um, cost and aid would look like for students like them. Um, we did a survey of students 
uh, asking like what what was helpful to them when they made these decisions. And very few people use net price calculators again because there's just not a lot of knowledge that these tools exist and they're hard to find. But of the students that did use them, they said that they were extremely helpful in making their college decision or making their list of colleges while while uh, where they wanted to apply. So that's definitely one that I would would look into. I don't know about comparison tools for financial aid offers. I, the part of the problem is I don't have any good financial aid offers anymore, like access to them, um, like I did with the report where I could put it through its paces on some of these apps. Um, but I encourage people to play around with them and see if any of them are better than like my old school, like Google Sheet or Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, we have to see. Um, okay, uh, this is also hopefully should be quick um, from Laferia. Can you speak more about the variations in loans? For example, I've been offered both subsidized and unsubsidized loans. So basically, what's the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized federal loan? Unsubsidized loans, uh, or sorry, subsidized loans, no interest accrues while you're in school. Unsubsidized loans, interest accrues while you're in school. That's like the easiest way for me to put that. And I feel like it still might be confusing. Um, it's just that, yeah, one doesn't have interest accrual during the time time that you're in school and that's the subsidized one. So I will say that it's better for you, like if you're trying to choose between the loans, um, it is good for you to exhaust subsidized before unsubsidized. Most people are just gonna borrow both and that's perfectly okay. Too. I know interest rates have gone up, but they're still not like at historically high rates where you see like tons and tons of meaningful difference um, between being charged interest and not being charged interest. So if you really do need that money from the unsubsidized loan, I wouldn't be scared away from the interest accrual of them, um, especially given, like I mentioned, the income driven repayment plans that allow you to pay based on, on your income in the future. Yes. Um, okay. And then, um, uh, okay. Here, here, so, you know, sort of two questions that are, I'm going I'm to combine two questions from Jackie and Peter. Um, who, Jackie asked, is a 529 and a UMTA account bad for students' financial aid calculation? And Peter asks, what assets are excluded from the aid calculation? So, I mean, I guess, can we just talk a little bit about like what kinds of, you know, what kind of specific assets, accounts, et cetera, are they looking at versus, um, you know, what are they not looking at? Yeah, I don't know exactly, like, I don't have off the top of my head the exact assets that they consider. I will say yeah. that if you are lucky enough to have a 529, like, you're, you know, in the minority of a lot of Americans to begin with. So, um, I, I don't know exactly, like, what hurts a financial aid offer but what to what's to keep the important thing to keep in in mind at the end of the day is that like if you qualify for something like a federal Pell Grant, which goes to the neediest students, it's actually not even big enough to defray a lot of the costs of college at this point because it hasn't kept up with uh, inflation. So when I talked to um, families uh, when I was an education advisor and they'd be like, oh, I'm not getting the Pell Grant. I was like, you should be happy you're not getting the Pell Grant. 
or things like that, because usually that doesn't even go far enough for those families. And those families have just like almost no resources to bring to bear on their um, education. If you, you know, if you look up expected family contribution, if you use, um, you know, federal student aids website, uh, you will get a better idea. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have the answer like off the top of my head, but you'll get a better idea of what assets are included and what assets aren't. There's been a lot written about it. And, and, uh, um, and so you can get the answer, answer there, but just keep in mind that the students that do get this need-based aid, they're often truly needy and still face huge gaps when it comes to enrolling in, in a higher education. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, this is sort of related, but, um, you know, does, do each, does each college have their own set of methods for calculating um, federal financial aid? Um, or forget, I mean, let's, we could, let's start with the federal piece and then maybe just financial aid in general. Yeah. So there is a federal aid cal calculation and that's for federal aid. And a lot of institutions use that calculation for their own institutional purposes, um, and states as well. So like, uh, I would say, you know, my, I would get hazard to guess that most institutions in most states, when it turns to granting aid use the federal calculation. There is something known as an institutional methodology that um, maybe the institution has decided to use their own methodology. They are not allowed to use that when awarding federal aid, but they can use that when awarding their own aid. Um, back at the top of the hour, I was talking about the CSS profile, um, which is, is a aid application that institutions sometimes require for their own federal financial, or sorry, for their own institutional aid. Um, and that comes with its own institutional uh, methodology. It counts assets totally different. It asks way more intrusive questions for anyone who has, has ever filled one of those out. I filled out many when I was in Boston Public Library and it was like, it was like, do I need to give blood at the end of this? <laughs> um, and so that is gonna take so much more into consideration. And you'll usually find that institutions that use that that application are the ones that give out a lot of aid because they really want to know the full financial picture of your family before they part with their institutional dollars towards you because it is uh, higher stakes in their eyes. Definitely. Okay. And then I think we'll, we will end on um, sort of two, two questions about resources, searching for resources. So the first is suggestions for, you know, where to look um, for scholarships. And then the second is suggestions for um, where to look to learn about student loans. Again, I help understanding those. I always recommend for, for student loans, for federal student loans, I always recommend the Department of Education's federal student aid website, um, because that's going to be like, the information, like that's like straight from the source. Like you want information straight from the source. And and to federal student aid's credit, they've really worked to make their website consumer friendly. So it, it doesn't feel like, you know, the sort of normal government website. So don't be put off by the fact that I'm like, go to the this like <laughs> governmental website and like, good luck with your life. No, it actually like, they've, they've put a lot of thought into like how to navigate this um, in, a, in a way of like, you've got a question, like here, here's an answer. So they, I think they even have a chat bot now that you can interact with. Um, so that's that's definitely where I'd go for, for information about any federal student aid and, and particularly federal student loans. Um, for scholarships, you know, 
the more national a scholarship search becomes, the bigger the applicant pool. So my thing is that I I would start locally. Like if your high school has or your 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 town's library has um, scholarship information from local providers, your applicant pool is going to be much smaller, and there might be lots of different scholarships that you can apply to. Um, something really important to keep in mind about scholarships is that sometimes institutions will engage in something called scholarship displacement, which means for every dollar of outside scholarship you get from an outside organization, if you have a scholarship from the institution, they might remove that from your financial aid offer. And it sounds really terrible and it does feel terrible, um, and not every institution does it, but they can do it. And I think the important thing to know is you don't like don't this should not stop you from going out to get these scholarships um but you should ask your institution if they engage in scholarship displacement so you know it ahead of time so that you're not like filling out 10 applications and then you find out that like oh they just removed all my institutional scholarships so i did all this work and now i have the same amount of money yeah right and yeah to be just to to put you know some hypothetical numbers to it let's say you know the school you want to go to is prepared to give you ten thousand dollars of their own aid and you get seven thousand dollars in scholarships um if they engage in this practice called displacement you know they'll say oh now we're going to give you three thousand dollars in aid instead of the ten um so you know like rachel said good to you know, not to, it doesn't, it shouldn't discourage you from applying, but good to check with any schools you're interested in, just so you kind of know what, um, you know, what those packages are going to look like at the end. Um, but yeah, thank you, Rachel, so much for being here and for answering all these questions. Um, that's all the time we have, but please join us on Monday when Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Eel, and Associate Editor for Technology, Eric J. Savitz, discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thanks for joining us. Have a nice day.